Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on this special episode of the podcast today is Faye McNeil. Faye is a professor of chemical engineering here at Columbia, but she's an atmospheric scientist. She's a leading expert on the chemistry of aerosols, which are small liquid or solid particles in the atmosphere. Faye studies how aerosols form and evolve, how they influence climate, and how they affect human health. Faye focuses on multi-phase processes, the phases being solid, liquid, and gas. Her early work for her PhD was on ice aerosols in the stratosphere, and since then she's done a great deal of important work on secondary organic aerosols, meaning liquid aerosols containing carbon that form by condensation from gases with organic molecules in them. Faye's core expertise is as an experimentalist, meaning she studies aerosols in the laboratory, but the laboratory setting is always cleaner and simpler than the real atmosphere, and it can be challenging to demonstrate how the behavior observed in the laboratory is relevant to the real atmosphere. So over time, Faye's become a modeler as well. She's developed intermediate mathematical models that leave out the complexities of weather, but that represent the chemistry happening on aerosol particles, not just individual chemical reactions, as she might study in the lab, but whole complex sets of reactions in a way that forms a bridge to fully comprehensive climate models, and thus that make her laboratory research more directly usable. And continuing on that theme of how Faye's research agenda has both expanded and become more usable over her career thus far, later in the interview, we got into some of her current work on air pollution, where she's now leading a team applying networks of low-cost sensors to provide air pollution data to cities in the global south that currently don't have any such data in the hope that it will help drive policies to clean up the air and improve human health. One programming note, whereas most of the episodes in this first season of our podcast were recorded many months ago, before the coronavirus pandemic hit, this one is a special episode done in near real time in response to the pandemic. It's the second one of those, the first being Jeff Shaman's a few weeks ago. Since the pandemic started, I've been having a few conversations with Faye about some scientific questions around how the virus spreads since it's carried on tiny aerosol particles, and she's an expert on those. Uh, and she had been posting some uh, slides she's been teaching from on Twitter and relevant articles and things, and I've been learning a lot from her. So near the end, we do talk about the pandemic, but the way the conversation went, that turned out to be just a small fraction of it. Most of the conversation is just about Faye's life and career. Some topics we talked about are the challenge of teaching students how to do research, how important a few words of encouragement from a good mentor can be, and especially over the course of the whole conversation, you can hear how Faye evolved step by step from a young scientist who was intensely focused on the technical challenges of her research, as most young scientists are, the pure science, if you will, to someone who now sees a much bigger picture of her science's place in society and who has consciously broadened her portfolio in order to make it more directly useful and usable to people. And just one more program note, this is the first episode we've done with someone who studies atmospheric composition rather than dynamics, meaning Faye studies what the stuff is that's in the atmosphere as opposed to how the stuff moves, uh, which is what I study. So my questions to Faye might be a little more ignorant than they normally are, but that's an opportunity for learning and it was a really stimulating conversation for me, and I hope it is for you as well. So here's my conversation with Faye McNeil. Welcome, Faye, thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm um, 
uh, why don't we do what we normally do, which is start with your biography. In particular, where are you from? Um, so I moved around a lot as a kid, um, always in America, mostly in the Midwest. And then um, I was in California for high school and college. My dad worked for General Motors when I was growing up, so we moved like every three or four years. I see. But we were kind of crisscrossing the Midwest for, for most of my childhood. I see. So, but but high school in California, right? Mm -hmm. Where in, in L.A. or in Bay Area? No, in the Bay Area. I lived in Danville, um, which is kind of by Walnut Creek. Oh, okay. so East Bay. Right. How'd you get into science? Um, I, I guess in high school, I really started liking chemistry a lot. I always liked math, um, and that plus. Um, a few family members who are engineers, you know, I kind of made the calculation that I should go into chemical engineering. And yeah, I guess that's uh, all she wrote. That's how it all started. Um, at Tell the time, me. I actually enjoyed writing a lot in high school. Um, so I, I was pretty into my English classes. And I remember when I was deciding what major to choose as a as an undergraduate, I did some kind of research project for an uh, English class where I was interviewing different types of engineers. Like I, I found an uh, environmental engineer in the community and uh -huh. electrical engineer and whatever. Um, so I, I, I had done a fair amount of background research by the time I, I made the decision, but I think um, I would say like 70% of chemical engineers and chemical engineering students that you talk to made the calculation that they were good at math and chemistry and putting those together meant like a, a good career path. And I, I have to say I, that probably wasn't, you know, much less complex than what my decision process was. Oh, that's all right. What, what did your dad do at General Motors? He was in middle management. He had so a um, bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, but he wasn't an engineer. I see. So you don't feel that you got it from him in any sense? I mean, when you live with engineers, there's just some some things that rub off, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like certain mentalities. And actually my, um, both of my grandfathers were engineers, like professionally. Oh, okay. And, you know, going way back before that, there's always been like a lot of mechanics and electricians and stuff in my family. Um, and women who are very handy around the house and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know, we're just kind of a bunch of makers and fixers and you have that ability, you can fix stuff? Yeah. Oh, that's great, I don't, I wish I did. And your yeah. mom, what'd she? Um, so my mom um, was really into art as a young person. Uh -huh. And then, you know, various life necessities uh, had her pivot to getting a master's in public health. And then she did various things related to that for, for years. All right, so a little yeah. bit of science there too. So, so you decided to do chemical engineering by the time you went to college, is that? Yeah, I mean, you had to pick a major. I, I, I went to Caltech, so right. I was apparently all in on the whole engineer thing. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Caltech is a whole, right, as a whole Yeah, thing. and then I, you know, I, I pretty much had settled on, on the major right away, and yeah. Right. Tell me about that experience, Caltech. It's a strange, such a strange place yeah. to go to college. It, yeah, yeah. Um, 
That's correct. It was it was pretty strange. So at that time, I don't know what it's like now, but my incoming freshman class was 200 people and it was 20% women. Wow. Yeah, so that's like not a lot of women. <laughs> yeah, I women, bet they've right? got it higher now, but yeah. Yeah. But you know, strangely, within chemical engineering, okay, it was a super small class. There were only like 10 of us, but six of us were women. Wow. Yeah. That's we were like way overrepresented. I know it's not statistical when you've only got 10 people, but. Uh, well, is, is that, I mean, is that just Caltech or is that. Is that no, I actually think I, I've never seen a group of chemical engineering students at the undergrad level that wasn't half or more women. That's so interesting. Has any anybody ever studied that or thought about why that is? Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's a major that has a reputation as being one of the hard ones. You know, one of the hardest engineering majors. Yeah. Um, you know, in my case, I always felt like I had an intuitive feeling for chemistry. Right. And I cooked a lot growing up, and I still cook a lot, you know, yeah. like not to be sexist or whatever, but like right. for me, all these things kind of go together. Like I, it's not hard for me to visualize what's happening with chemistry and chemical processes and whatever. Um, I think there are a lot of people for whom chemistry just seems like fiction and it doesn't feel natural to, to visualize it, right? Like maybe there's just something right. about either the way we're raised or, or who knows, but women end up it all clicks with us. Well, it's funny. I love to cook, but I've never really gotten chemistry all that well. So I don't know. I don't know. So, and and did you do research? I did. Caltech? did you get yeah, I mean, that's really what got what me about? hooked in research. Um, so, <clears throat> um, you know, the chemical engineering department is pretty small there, but um, I would say that atmospheric science, aerosol science, atmospheric chemistry is pretty overrepresented in the faculty. So there's, you know, two out of 10 faculty or whatever at the time were very big names in that field. And Rick Flagan, um, he was my academic advisor. So there was some point where I was without a summer job and, and he was, you know, he offered me a job in his office and he said, well, you know, you could come work with me. We're trying to develop a new way to count particles in the air. And I think my answer was literally like, why? Why would I do that? Which was actually the right question, but I think I was kind of a brat about it. <laughs> um, and, you know, then he started explaining, well, okay, you know, air pollution, one of the major elements of that is submicron particles in, in the atmosphere that can cause respiratory problems and... I kind of started to, you know, as I was listening to him talk about this, I started to put a lot of puzzle pieces together in my head. So I'm an asthmatic. Oh. And yeah, I, I had real bad asthma as a kid, like really bad. And I, I still take medication for it, but it's pretty well under control. But um, at the time, the air in Los Angeles was bad. It was quite dirty. And, you know, we couldn't see the San Gabriel Mountains from Caltech's campus except for maybe once or twice a year, like one or two days a year. And I felt ill a lot of the time while I was in college. Like I needed to use my inhaler a lot more. 
And, um, you know, so, so certainly I was aware of the air pollution around me then, and I've certainly thought about lungs and inhaling aerosols to, to help me breathe better and all that kind of stuff my whole life. And, you know, it, it really started to make sense. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about aerosol science is that the science part of it is also super challenging and elegant too. So, you know, this aspect of like the intellectual challenge, having to do a lot of math, which I liked to do as a young person, um, you know, something I really tangibly could appreciate as being important and real to me, and, you know, somehow connected to helping people, uh, you know, all that, plus working in a lab and, you know, getting my first, I would say, real exposure to like hands-on using tools and this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it all was very attractive for me. But from your reaction to him and what you sort of described as how you got into it, I get the sense that you weren't initially drawn to this field out of some interest in, you know, the atmosphere or environmentalism or anything like that. No, that's like, absolutely right. I mean, I, I already mentioned to you that my dad worked for General Motors when I grew up. Um, my household was not like a household full of environmentalists. We can say that. But yeah, so I, I walked into Caltech not knowing hardly anything about, you know, not really having a particular interest in environmental problems. But then, you know, and even before I had this conversation with Rick, different professors would use examples in class of, let's say, um, there was an issue with MTBE, a solvent, like leaching into waterways in Los Angeles. And they'd use like this kind of stuff mm -hmm. as, as examples. And I'd be like, wait a second, this is hardcore tech and fascinating and hey that's awful that there was solvent in the water <laughs> you know it, it it was almost like a fresh impression of of, um, of all of this environmental stuff so I, I I ended up growing to feel really passionately about it like after exposure in college all right so but anyway so you get invited to work in uh, Rick's lab and um, and what'd you do I there? helped make like the first prototype for a fast mixing condensation nucleus counter. So um, wow. it means, mean? so one thing we might be interested in is counting particles, uh, you know, either just because you um, would like to know people's exposures to um, particulate matter in the atmosphere, or perhaps you're interested in how clouds are forming in the atmosphere. And yeah. so there are different kinds of devices you can use where you would bring in particles from outside and then expose them to supersaturated conditions. So for cloud, for cloud measurements, that would be something supersaturated in, in water. If you're just trying to measure all the particles out there, you size select it first, using, usually based on their um, electrical mobility. And then you just grow them all up to be big enough to um, be counted by light scattering. Um, the see. traditional ways to do this, or like, you know, the gold standard ways to do this, which honestly, Rick probably is the one who developed it <laughs> um, back in the early 80s or so. Um, it, it would take like, let's say, seven or eight minutes to do the full size scan and get like a complete measurement of the particles in a sample. And so he had a vision for a way to do it in much shorter time. So just the, the plumbing of the system was, was different. Um, and so he wanted somebody to build this prototype, which, you know, along the way you have to learn how to, um, you know, 
first just detect particles in the air and, and count them so that you could test the apparatus that you're building, you know, put together the, these pipes. And, you know, we had a homemade laser system where, you know, we would be reflecting light off these particles and then capturing um, scattered light using optics and stuff. It, it, it was pretty cool. And I, I remember not, um, I, I've, I've kind of always been this way where I just like accept a task that's given to me, like, okay, well, this is, this is my responsibility. I, I, I need to do this now. Um, and so I, I spent weeks just kind of like with my own bench set up, you know, building this thing and, you know, trying to troubleshoot on mm -hmm. my own. And yeah, I was a junior in, in college. I didn't have any experience. I, I would ask for things, you know, if I, if I knew I needed help, like, okay, I had never used a drill before. I grew up in a house full of handy people, but I was a girl. I, I did not get exposed to these kinds of things. Um, so I would ask for help with mm. that kind of stuff. But, you know, when it came to actually doing my project, I thought that I should be able to complete it on my own. I didn't realize like how normal it would be yeah. for somebody my age to be like just shadowing a grad student or something like that. And so at, after like two months, I finally asked somebody, I was like, you know, I used to be able to detect particles when I did this, but now I'm not detecting them anymore. And they were like, wait a second, <laughs> like, how did you build this and you're detecting particles already? Um, so I, I think I just had a, a mindset for, for lab research where I wasn't shy to troubleshoot and do that kind of thing on my own. Um, so I, I just dove right into it and didn't really look back. That's what really, I mean, I, that's what really distinguishes people who can do research from people who can't, right? It's not a question of just being smart. It's a question of like mm. trying stuff and seeing what happens and trying to figure out what works when it doesn't work. And, exactly. Like, um, yeah, that's what's hard. So hard to teach students that because on some sense you, you can't teach it except maybe by example. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I, I worry as time goes on, the type of exposure that young people have before coming to college these days is a little different from what we had. I mean, like I said, I can't, I, I wasn't one of the many laboratory scientists who just grew up in the garage with their dad and already knew how to fix a carburetor or whatever by the time they came to college. Like that, that wasn't me. I, I had like peripheral knowledge of a lot of that kind of stuff, but I, I was a girl, I was in the house, I was, you know, doing more traditionally female things as I grew up. Um, but like young people now, just with the way technology is, right? Like you, you use your phone for a couple of years and then you just replace it. You're not in a position where you troubleshoot things around the house as much. Um, like, how do we get that back? Or how, how do you teach that? And did, did we always have to teach that? And I just took it for granted, I don't know. I, no, I, you know, I think it's a more general thing than just, I mean, you're talking about, I think, two things at once. I mean, one is sort of mechanical skill with, you know, physical objects and machines that break and stuff. But I think the sort of independent mindset of troubleshooting is sort of distinct from that. And, it, and it's, it's the same issue when you work on the computer or anything. I, I learned it. I didn't learn it in school. I learned it uh you know on the job as a sound engineer that's where i first learned it i didn't uh, know you then, were a sound engineer yeah right after undergraduate for a while and and um i, I learned how to just try things you know mm -hmm. that's what's so hard to teach like you know people who have reached old age without ever using computers mm. they're just afraid to sometimes hit the button you know they're afraid mm -hmm. to just like click the link mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay, the first thing you do is just like the obvious thing that the thing is telling, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to destroy it by hitting that button that says like yeah. next or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and on some level it comes down to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, that's uh, but true. I don't... Yeah, you have to be uh-huh. willing to try things. And you know, on that note, in, during that first summer job I had, I did break like a twenty thousand dollar piece of equipment in the lab because <laughs> I was trying to fix that. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> Rather than ask a... for help, you know, it, uh, there's a limit. <laughs> that's probably a rite of passage. What was it? That's right. What'd it you was. Break? It was like the commercial version of the thing I was trying to make, like oh, the, okay. the the TSI. Um, Condensation particle counter, yeah. Rick really wanted me to stay in um, the field of aerosol instrumentation when I went on to grad school. I mean, he, he's the one who, I mean, he, he's he's not like a real um, talkative person or, you know, it's not, it's not like we talked that frequently <laughs> or anything, but he would just say, you know, encouraging things at the right moment that I, I would, I have to give a lot of credit to, to him for me staying in science and you know, in, in fact, I remember in grad school when things would feel, or even as a postdoc, when things would feel kind of demoralizing, I would remember back to like some very simple conversations that I had with Rick and like still feel <laughs> uh, sufficiently more encouraged than I did, um, you know, before revisiting those those memories. So I, I have to give him a lot of credit for getting me started in my career. I think that a lot of us have... have um experiences like that that are critical of of mentors that are not just encouraging but encouraging in sort of ways that are like you described in other words someone who doesn't necessarily communicate much my phd advisor was like that but the communication you do get works right somehow exactly and like it also makes me mindful that the offhand conversations with that i have with undergraduates mean much more to them than I might realize at the moment, right? Like I might, uh-huh. you know, honestly, these conversations I'm remembering might have been as simple as him saying like, oh, why don't you apply to grad school? Like, I'm sure I've said that, said that to tons of people and it wasn't carrying this huge amount of portent when I was saying it, but that's certainly the way I took it. <laughs> yeah, You know, to hear somebody like him, I mean, you know, there wasn't anybody with a PhD in my family and um, hearing somebody say that actually I should go to grad school and that I had what it took, like that meant a lot at that moment. Did you go straight out of undergrad? I did. However, I went to the MIT Department of Chemical Engineering, which has this thing called the MIT Practice School in Chemical uh-huh. Engineering. Yeah. Have you heard of this? No. It's a master's program that MIT has been running for, I don't know, at least 100 years that involves a series, it involves like coursework that's basically the same as incoming PhD students, um, but it also involves a series of very intense, you could call them internships, but it's more like you're thrown into act, working as a consultant um, with at least two different companies. Like, so like one month projects with a, an, a you ha- you're embedded with a, a team of fellow students and a faculty member in, let's say like a factory or something, and then mm-hmm. you're assigned uh, like a, a one month consulting job. And then you do this like four times. It's part of the uh, the degree. So I opted to do that like on the way to getting my PhD mm-hmm. because I felt like I needed a little bit more um, exposure to, you know, I, I wanted to be sure that industrial 
chemical engineering wasn't for me before I like dove into academia or whatever. Um, and I also wise. felt like I needed a lot more practical experience because the, the education at Caltech is super theoretical, like super theoretical. Yeah. yeah. So wh wh what'd you do? I worked at, I, I don't think they exist anymore, GE Plastics. Uh -huh. um, I think the company, like I think that part of the company was bought years ago. But so I was in the middle of Indiana. Um, no, actually not the middle of Indiana. It was the southern tip of Indiana, so very close to Kentucky and Missouri, a few other places, um, working at a big plant, looking at things like powder handling for them making plastics. And okay. there was something to do with control. Like like they wanted us to solve some control problem in their, um, in their chemical process. And you know, we didn't know what else to do, but we just applied like what we learned in our uh, process control theory class. And they were like, no. <laughs> They're like, no, this, this definitely won't do. Um, it, it was a very interesting experience because to to make progress in that kind of environment in that short of time, we had to do a lot of things like like go to the f like the manufacturing floor and, and get the operators to talk to us and show us around and uh, you know point out like what their problems are and you know it it, it was great exposure for for all of us. But I certainly felt like as a, so I was what, I turned 21 right before grad school. So I was oh, okay. like a 21-year-old young blonde girl or whatever. Like it was not as easy for me to like dive in and effectively like, you know, if a guy does it, it's not flirting. But like if I'm sitting around trying to get these like plant operators to tell me their secrets or whatever, it's like... <laughs> It's it's a more awkward social interaction. Let's put it that way. You think you would have taken to it? Uh, you think you would have been if it wasn't for that? You would have been in industrial plastics today, or no? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean that just made it more challenging and yeah. uh, whatever. Yeah. It also, I mean, it, it was also good. They had us. Um, it was like a real crash course on communication. So uh -huh. each week we would have to do different formats of you know, memos and whatever, but also like give a lot of stand-up presentations and then we would be graded very harshly and, uh, you know, in minute detail about how we did our presentations and stuff. And I think all, all of that was, was a good gauntlet to be put through. Okay. Okay. So you do this and then you go to do your PhD in chemical engineering. Who was your advisor? Um, I had two advisors. Um, one was Bernhard Trout who was in the chemical engineering department and the other one was Mario Molina. Right. I thought it was him, but I didn't. Yeah. Because he weren't in, he wasn't in chemical engineering, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, so he, he was, was still there in that time. Yeah. Correct. So he was a university professor at the time. Um, his lab was in the, um, the green building. So yep. his lab was like within Earth, atmospheric, and planetary sciences, yep. but I think he also identified as being a, a chemistry professor and whatnot. And he, yep. he and Bernhardt had a joint, um, uh, a proposal funded together on the surface chemistry of ice. So specifically, um, there's something odd about ice chemistry in polar stratospheric clouds. So, yep. you know, the kind of surface chemistry that that eventually leads to ozone hole formation over the South Pole. 
um, there's this surface effect where um, the top few layers of water molecules on, on ice surfaces are, they're not really in the strict crystal structure that you would expect ice to be in. They're a little bit out of order, mm -hmm. but they're not so out of order like what you would find in a liquid, right? Like those are completely random. Yeah. Um, so they call this surface pre-melting, you know, that happens in, in other solids too, like, like metals. Some people refer to it as the quasi-liquid layer, which sounds evil, um, like mad scientist stuff or whatever. Um, but, you know, we, Mario had this hypothesis that the reason why the, um, the heterogeneous chemistry of HCl and chlorine nitrate on ice surfaces was so efficient, you know, as to drive this, um, you know, the ozone depletion that we see seasonally over the South Pole. He, his hypothesis was that the the disordered water molecules at the surface of the ice um, kind of promoted these ionic reactions between those gases. And, you know, at the time I just kind of accepted it. He was like, okay, look, just do these experiments to show that this is true. I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, you know, now looking back, he had very, very little basis to to make that hypothesis on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it certainly was true that the reactions were very efficient. Um, you know, that was easy to measure in the lab. And you could do a back-of-the-envelope calculation that um, they were about a thousand times more efficient than you would expect based on, you know, if the ice surface was perfect, you know, perfectly ordered and you had normal hydrogen bonds between the the water molecules at the ice surface and the, the HCl and chlorine nitrate molecules. But, um, you know, that, that connection with the, the quasi-liquid layer, it, was, it wasn't really obvious that we were going to find that. Um, you know, it normally exists only down to maybe minus 30. And then PSCs are more at like minus 80, like minus 75, yeah. minus 80, something like that, Celsius. Yeah. Um, and we found it. I mean, it, what, what it turned out was that it's the exposure to the gases that induces the disorder at those low temperatures. Uh -huh. um, so like if you're using an optical technique, the surface looks like a much a, a surface at a much warmer temperature. You can see that kind of disordered layer on the surface when you expose it to HCl at um, those low temperatures. And then, you know, we took it the next step and then showed that, you know, under the conditions where we don't do that, the reaction's not as efficient, but, you know, it needs to, that needs to be happening for the, the fast reaction to, to take place. Okay, so just in case we have any non-technical listeners, um, what I try to do in these is give a little translation when I can. And most of your science is gonna be totally um, uh, alien to me, so I'm not gonna be able to do this. But in this particular case, I know enough to give some context because I was actually a grad student um, uh, in Molina's department. I had classes from him. He was, oh. I loved his class. He was totally disorganized uh, <laughs> and didn't prepare at all. And a lot of the students didn't like it, but I loved it because you could see how he thought. He would just completely make up his lecture on the spot, it seemed to me, and you could see how his brain worked, and he was obviously brilliant. I was there when he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. That happened oh, uh, that's amazing. in my time. But um, So yeah, so, so the context, just to give people a little background, is the ozone hole happens because of um, chlorine uh, and other uh, reactive species, but especially chlorine that's released from uh, hydrochlorofluorocarbon stuff that's in refrigerators and, and air conditioners are used to be anyway, freons, and they, those chemicals are very stable. 
Um, they don't really react with anything, but when they get up in the stratosphere um, high above the clouds, the sunlight breaks them down a little bit and they end up in sort of somewhat less stable, but still pretty stable species. And then the only thing that breaks them down is when they get um, over the pole in springtime where um, there are these things called polar stratospheric clouds. So the stratosphere has almost no water vapor in it and almost no clouds, but over the pole in winter, uh, especially in Antarctica, but also over the Arctic, it's so cold that um, that little bit of water can condense and you get these ice clouds and it's on the surfaces of those little ice crystals that the special reactions take place that break up these semi-stable species with chlorine in them um, and let the chlorine out where it can chew up all the ozone. So you guys, so you were studying exactly how those reactions occur and the really details of what's happening on the surface of the ice. Did I get that about right? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, great. So you're doing experiments. You would sort of create artificial polar stratospheric cloud particles in the lab and study them. Is that the basically the? More or less, yeah. We would create different types of ice surfaces that, you know, let, let's say one would be like a single crystal or another one would be um, deposited from vapor, so it would be very rough or something like that. Um, we weren't actually like making a cloud of crystals, um, but yeah, we would make kind of proxy surfaces that would resemble PSCs and then expose them to the gases and either look at the optical properties of the surface. So look for the development of any funny business at the interface there with the quasi-liquid layer formation mm -hmm. or um, just monitor the rates of the chemical reactions taking place on the surface. And so and so basically he took a flyer on on a pretty, you know, as you made it sound like a theory that he didn't have that much basis for, but it turned out to be right? Yeah. I mean, he has amazing intuition. He is a brilliant person, as you, as you said. Um, and, you know, I only appreciate that. I, I only appreciated it many years later, looking back as a PI, like, I mean, by the time I was there, so I started in the year nine, yeah, the fall of 99. He had already won the Nobel Prize. Right. He probably didn't need to justify his hypotheses as much as some of the rest of us do when he wrote grants. Right. I was about to say, <laughs> you can take risks, you know. You can be like, exactly. Ask the grad student tanks, you know, whatever. It's Yeah. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was plausible, but like, I mean, most of us need to show like preliminary data or something. But he was right. So you got, totally your, right. you got your thesis, your PhD on that? I did, yeah. And so then, okay, so not to rush through things too quickly, but I want to get up to the, to your work here at Columbia. So what, so what happens after? You did a postdoc somewhere? Or? Um, yeah, I did a postdoc at University of Washington in okay. the Department of Atmospheric Science. Yeah. I was in a funny position because part of um, the consequences of doing, so if that project that I just described to you sounded hard, it was because it was. <laughs> I couldn't have told you how hard it was. Yeah, the experiments, I mean, they took, it took like the full, let's say it took like a good four years, five years to to really do those experiments correctly and, and get that data. Like, and it, it was kind of like the, it, it was like the capstone on, on Mario's ozone hole story, right? Right. Like he start one of the first things he did in his career was hypothesize as a, as a postdoc that CFCs could potentially contribute to ozone depletion right. in the stratosphere, right? Right. And then, you know, he kind of carried that, you know, he testified in front of Congress back then. And then once the ozone hole was actually 
discovered, you know, he was one of the scientists to jump on, okay, well, why, why is it seasonal and why is it only appearing over the South Pole? The missing link must be these polar stratospheric cloud particles, right? And so he, he and his colleagues um, published some of the, the most influential papers on, on the ice chemistry at the beginning there. And then this was kind of like the far, far end of closing that arc of like, okay, well, why, um, you know, why was that chemistry so effective and important? And um, so the experiments were very difficult. Um, it took a long time to collect the data. And then of course we wanted to go for a prestige journal once we got it. So um, long story short, I did not have a ton of papers um, coming out of my my PhD. In fact, none of my papers were actually published. I had a full, I had to write my entire thesis from like a blank doc document. <laughs> right. Well, that wasn't as unusual. I mean, I was there only a few years before you and it wasn't as unusual then as it is now, but yeah. Now it would be like, what are you even doing? I mean, I, I think that Mario could still do that, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they had they had to let me out, and um, I had done the the work, and I was very good at what I did. And I don't know, I, I was very lucky that so Joel Thornton, who was my my postdoc advisor, oh, okay, he wasn't even at UW yet um, when he was he was awarded this grant from NASA to look at um, heterogeneous chemistry of N two O five on aerosol particles. Mm -hmm. And he was a postdoc with somebody who I had known, you know, the, the, our connection had was somebody who I had known when he was a grad student in the lab with me at MIT. So mm. he could vouch for the fact that I knew how to use, you know, the mass spectrometry techniques and the flow, flow tube kinetics and whatever. Mm. Um, and that I, you know, despite my publication record, I, I would be productive and all that kind of stuff. And right. meanwhile, Joel was like a, a brand new faculty member to the point where I couldn't visit his lab because he wasn't even there yet. Um, and so, but through the, through this introduction and then, you know, we clicked, I, I was very interested in, in what he wanted to do and I had the right skill set for what he wanted to do. And, and you were the student um, of a guy with a Nobel prize. I mean, that's, that's not a bad credential to have. Yeah, I suppose it helped, but you know, okay, anyway, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, I got lucky. Um, Can I just say, pause and say that right I didn't now. realize until we we're having this conversation how parallel, although separated in time, your trajectory and mine are, because I was a MIT PhD and Washington postdoc also, and mm. uh, my thesis was on the polar stratosphere, I mean the meteorology, so I don't know. I didn't think we yeah, had this much in common, funny. but apparently we do. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I went to Seattle, and it was a really cool experience. So Joel was a very brand new professor and he needed somebody to build his lab for him um you know so so the types of mass spectrometers that i used as a grad student and that joel uses and that i use in my lab you build them from scratch basically mm -hmm. so um you can buy like the the guts of it from a company but then the vacuum chamber and, and everything else and all the pumps and everything you kind of uh, custom design it and and get the parts made and, and construct it yourself. So I did that for Joel in his lab, and then you know, which which was really intimidating because in Mario's lab I was using a very ancient piece of equipment that we had a, um, a figurine of some Star Wars character shooting 
lightning out of its hands, like that would sit on top of it as like this, uh, you know, talisman to make sure that it worked. <laughs> you know, it was like a, a healthy dose of black magic was going into like hoping that the machine would work every day when you turned it on. Um, and so the notion of like building one of these from scratch wasn't totally like, you know, it, it wasn't a no brainer for me to begin with, right. but I had used them enough and taken them apart and put them back together or whatever that, uh, you know, I, I was in a good place to, to try certainly. And, and Joel had a good design and, and he was new enough that he had time to kind of walk into the lab and, and check out what I was doing and, and be in good touch with me. Uh, so, you know, I got the machine built right away and then, you know, given my, my publication situation from grad school, I was very motivated to start getting data and, and publishing right away. Yeah. And he was obviously very motivated since he was a new faculty member. And so um, between the two of us, we, we got a lot of work done in those two years that I was in his lab. Um, it, it, it was a good experience and the science was cool. But N2, it, it was fun. But N205 on ice, did you say? No, on, on aerosol. On aerosol. So is this when yeah. you start transitioning to tropospheric? Yes, okay. yes. And that was a joyful thing because when you are working on stratospheric ice particles, the experiments are like, I mean, you have to create this vacuum condition, minus 80 Celsius, you know, you're handling a, a substrate that literally will melt if you mishandle it, or it'll, you can pump it away if you accidentally like, you know, have the temperature and the pumping rate wrong or whatever. So just handling ice was just so much more challenging that getting to work at um, atmospheric pressure and temperature was, <laughs> it was so easy. <laughs> so did you come to Columbia right after this? I did, yeah. Okay, and when did you, I can't remember when you got here, about 07 or something? 07, so it was okay. like July 2007. Right, I still remember this cause, because, um, because chemical engineering hired you. We had this thing that we had very few atmospheric scientists on the regular faculty. And we were kind of like, had been arguing to hire more. Our mutual colleague and friend, Lorenzo Polvani, told me one day that he had, he had met you at a conference, like he had seen a, a talk about atmospheric chemistry by a young faculty member at Columbia. And we were like, who the hell is this? Like, it was just, <laughs> it was just strange that you I showed up that. and we didn't even know it until quite a bit later. Yeah, I think you were on sabbatical at that time too. Right? Oh, that was true. I was in Australia, yeah. But even then, I mean, I, anyway, it was just kind of funny. But uh, yeah, right, so you, so you've got, so at that point you've switched to tropospheric aerosols and you set up your own lab or, or what have you been working on? What, what did you work on in the first years that, let, let's go through the progression of, you know, what you worked on since you've been here. You know, a common theme, you know, that of, of what I've already talked about and what continued throughout, you know, the, the first several years of my time at Columbia was this idea of gases in the atmosphere reacting with surfaces, right? Hmm. So whether it's gases being taken up by, by particles or cloud droplets or reactions happening on ice surfaces, you know, what we would call heterogeneous or multi-phase processes was yeah. kind of like my, my wheelhouse, right? And so, you know, there's a certain set of theoretical and like physical experimental tools that you would use to set, to um, investigate those kinds of problems. And so I just kind of broadened the range of problems that I would, you know, be willing to, to focus on while keeping in mind what our strengths were, which was this, this insight fundamentally into how these uh, systems worked. 
And so, um, you know, and partly just timing with what is hot at the time in the field and that kind of thing. Um, a big focus at the beginning for us was reactions that would happen in the liquid part of aerosols that would lead to the formation of more particle mass. And so, um, you know, as, as it turns out, a lot of particle mass, including like, let's say the, the very mundane sulfate aerosol, which a lot of people have heard about, a lot of these processes are multi-phase. Multi-phase means gas, liquid, solid. I mean, those are the Yeah, exactly. Like that it's not just something that happens in the gas phase. It, it needs that other phase to happen, right? So in the mid-2000s, you know, the focus was really on organic chemistry in aerosols. And so where is all the organic material and, and particles coming from? And a big part of that is because by that point in history in the United States, we had cleaned up a lot of the inorganic material in our particles, right? So we had had a good 15 years of the SO2 cap and trade program. And so sulfate in particles was not as big of an issue as it had been. And a lot of the places in the US, you know, organic material was making up a, a much larger fraction of the, the particle mass and what people were being exposed to, what was causing health problems and, you know, violations of EPA standards and whatever. So, um, you know, it, it, it's been a big challenge for the community to try to identify what are the pathways by which this forms. And, and the, the family of pathways that we focused on was through aqueous chemistry that would happen either in particles or in, in cloud droplets. And so, I mean, aerosols at ground level are, you know, are pollutant when, and bad for people when they inhale them, and mm -hmm. at least some are. But, but you came at a time when there was also the sort of explosion of interest in climate science in the role of aerosols in climate because these little particles can also reflect or absorb radiation coming from the sun or 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 infrared radiation coming up from the earth and so they affect the radiative balance of the planet and the climate and my perception was that, that sort of wasn't your focus at the beginning but that you sort of started to engage with it at some yeah i think that's right so um we st we stumbled across a set of chemical reactions that could cause the the optical properties of particles to go from being just scattering so like generally cooling in the atmosphere to light absorbing so more potentially warming so these were pathways chemical pathways in the particles for the formation of what we call brown carbon for it's a very mm. unpoetic term but kind mm. of distinguishing it from black carbon which would be soot right so brown right. carbon is observed all over the planet but where it comes from is not clear um, so we identified a few chemical pathways um, by which brown carbon was was being formed and I, I would actually argue that at least when it comes to brown carbon we were a little bit on the early side of the curve Mm -hmm. um, because I personally had a hard time convincing, you know, being at that interface between chemistry and climate, I had a hard time funding that particular, you know, path of inquiry. So if people weren't convinced yet that it was a big climate impact, I think that now the, there have been more large scale simulations that support it being. So black carbon is, is soot. So that's like produced directly from burning. Mm -hmm. You know, we understand what soot is, but brown carbon it means this is stuff that's formed originally from gas phase that condenses into... Yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? So some of it, 
yeah, I, th I think most of it has this kind of multi-phase character to it. Um, combustion, like biomass burning and that kind of stuff, wildfires, mm -hmm. definitely is a big source of, of black or brown carbon. Um, but there also seem to be a lot of the same chemical pathways that are what we would call like secondary organic aerosol formation. Um, right. A lot of related chemical pathways make organic material that's light absorbing. So they make this brown carbon. So secondary organic aerosol means that it forms from gases that have organic molecules exactly. in it that condenses? Yeah. Okay. But sorry, you were saying this introduced you to something? Oh, yeah. So it also introduced me to, you know, this kind of fundamental problem that we can have as experimentalists. Um, you know, before that point in my career, I had mainly been studying systems that like the modeling community and atmospheric chemistry agreed were important, but maybe they wanted to know more specifics about the rate process, the, the chemical mechanisms or the, the rate constants, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so I wasn't having to justify like, well, why are you studying N205 uptake on aerosols? That was already established as being important. Um, but when it came to this other kind of discovery, you know, we're seeing these very dramatic re results in the lab, you know, something that seemed like it could be potentially important, but the idea of pushing this concept from the lab to, okay, how could we test this in a model to see if it actually is important or not, you know, thinking through that process and talking through it with modelers taught me a lot about, um, you know, so, some basic issues with how we do science and, and atmospheric science. So, you know, when, when, we're in, when we're in the lab and we're doing experiments, we're really studying one molecule at a time, or, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. a couple molecules at a time, right? And get, yeah. measuring one rate constant at a time. And meanwhile, the average atmospheric particle probably has tens of thousands of individual unique organic species in it. Right. And, you know, and, and as you know very well, um, large-scale atmospheric models are limited in terms of how much detail they can include for the chemistry by computational expense, right? So the models are, are very big. There's a lot of processes, a lot of differential equations being solved at the same time. Um, you know, when you're talking about a climate model, it's even heavier because you've got all different processes, not just, you know, atmospheric processes being represented. Um, so even though we're thinking about, you know, the chemistry on this very detailed level, usually there's not room to just automatically port that knowledge that we get from lab experiments into the large scale models. Yeah. Right. And so the question is, well, how would you do it? When should you do it? Like, so how do you decide which experimental study is so promising that you should do some model development and test it out, right. you know? Um, and, you know, often the answer is simply like, well, this experimentalist knows that modeler and they had a coffee and, <laughs> you know, decide, or, or th this group does both modeling and experiments and they just, you know, decide amongst themselves what they're gonna test. But it, it, it's actually, you know, besides a communication problem, it's, it's a technical problem, right? And so, you know, we, we've been thinking about how to address this using using 
a series of modeling approaches in my lab. So I would say since 2010 or 2011, um, our efforts have been about half numerical modeling and, and half experiments. And some, a lot of that is not climate modeling, but sort of process modeling of the what's actually happening in the individual aerosol particles. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So what we do is, um, yeah, the mo the modeling that we're doing is, you could consider this like one grid box of a atmospheric chemistry model that would be a larger scale. So we are able to represent chemi uh, chemical processes in, in very fine detail, but we're not worrying about you know practically any other process except for maybe emissions and deposition. For just yeah. throwing all of the, you know, and, and, and this in fact is a, a pretty big intellectual step from the kind of data that we produce in the lab because oh, yeah. now instead of just one reaction, we're having all those reactions compete with each other and having realistic mass transfer between the gas and the cloud droplet or the gas and the atmospheric particle or whatever. And, you know, given at least that level of realism and complexity, which reactions survive? Like which ones rise to the top as, as having a signal? And it's it's often never the ones that the experimentalists would guess initially. So you're building the sort of, you're building the steps in between your lab work and the global climate models. You're trying to like form those intermediate links that allow you to yeah, we're trying to make the the judgment call of, you know what, this process is not going to be impactful. People shouldn't, you know, spend a lot of energy trying to translate it to the large scale models. Perhaps they shouldn't even be studying it in the lab anymore. <laughs> it's really popular to say stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so being able to distinguish like, wow, you know, the combination of mass transfer and you know, chemical kinetics and the abundance of these precursors makes this particular pathway like a real dynamo for for making secondary organic aerosol. We should really, you know, if then I can tell global modelers, you know, if you include just, if you want to get the flavor of this family of aqueous processes, make sure you have this pathway and you'll represent 95% of, of um, the effect that you're after, that kind of thing. And so, as part of this sort of progression, I mean, what you're describing is, I mean, you're describing a scientific progression, but also, in a sense, you sort of start out, as many of us do as young scientists, you know, very, very focused on, on the specific um, details of some particular phenomenon and how it works. Um, but then you start thinking about the broader implications of it. So in your case, as you've just described, how the chemical reactions you're studying on particles are relevant to the climate problem. Um, you know, as you're becoming a more senior scientist, you're starting to think a bit bigger, uh, whether out of social responsibility or the need to write, you know, write more grant proposals or whatever it might be. But the latest step in that, which it seems to me is a few years at least now, is that you've become very engaged again in the air pollution problem. Uh, not just from the point of view of the sort of raw technical advances of the kind that you, you know, did as a young scientist, but also from the applied perspective of thinking about how to actually help people, you know, breathe cleaner air. Is that, can you talk about that sort of progression? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, you know, I think that both the transition I described to you with us moving from kind of detailed you know, molecule by molecule experiments, which we still do, but, you know, adding in this component of evaluating 
um, impact using a series of models. You know, it, it's about my personal desire that my work has impact and that it's not yeah. just a thought experiment, I suppose. Or, I mean, yeah, maybe it is a thought experiment, but that it should be the right thought experiment and um, yeah. that it's not pointless. Absolutely. It's kind of bleak to <laughs> look at it that way, but I, I know a lot of engineers who, like, honestly, just solving a hard logic puzzle with their research and moving on to the next thing it is satisfying enough for them, but it's not for me. Um, well, there's that. I mean, there's that, but also when you're young, you sort of have to survive, you know? And oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. And, and so you, you have to publish the next chops. paper, and you, yeah, you have yeah. to prove yourself to your colleagues, and then at some point you've done that well enough, and you think, okay, what's, you know, now what's the point, you know? yeah. That's right, and um, yeah, and the types of questions that you get called on to answer in your career change over the years too, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, you, I know people who are satisfied just you know knowing the details of how their chemical reactor works in their lab and the the last rate constant they measured to the last you know three decimal places or whatever, but. Um, I like to be able to justify that, that what we're doing is the right thing and it's important. Um, I, I often tell a story about what finally got me to, to write the first version of our, our model, Gamma. Um, I was at AGU and I had presented one of our brown carbon studies and one of my colleagues stood up. People used to do this all the time at AGU. I don't know if they still do, but like atmospheric chemists used to stand up and shout at the speaker. <laughs> Big <laughs> and, science and, conference, AGU, we should say. Really yeah, at yeah, American yeah. Geophysical Union. Like, like for, our culture is not like that. Our community is not like that. But for some reason, AGU used to be like that. And I don't know what it was about the, <laughs> the environment. It, it was really lousy, to be honest. Um, but okay. this person stood up and was like, you know, Faye, I, you know, he had presented a, a similar reaction, right, uh, that his group had discovered. He's like, you know, Faye, my rate constant so much faster than your rate constant. When are you going to start studying important chemistry like my my chemistry? And and my answer was like, that is a ridiculous thing to say. Um, you know, as it turned out, his reaction was completely unimportant because of mass transfer considerations. And <laughs> um, but I mean, just the idea that this is the level of argument that we were having when there was like so much more. Um, you know, th th this literally was what dr sent me home and, and had me start coding up this model so I could put his reaction and my reaction <laughs> next to each other and see who won. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so so impact, you know, besides petty um, disagreements with my colleagues, uh, <laughs> I also like to feel like my life's work is, you know, moving towards some kind of purpose. And, you know, it's certainly more satisfying if you feel like you're able to, to really right. help people. Right. Um, and, you know, so, so I've always kind of had an eye out for what ways could I make that happen? You know, what problems could I be studying that um, would be more directly relevant towards, towards people's health and livelihood and whatever. And, you know, some, somewhere during this time period, um, the issue of really severe air pollution related to, um, atmospheric aerosols in Asia started to emerge, you know, started to get in international attention. Um, and, you know, I, I really kind of, I circled the perimeter of that problem looking for, 
you know how I would how it would make sense for me to to get involved in um, yeah in working with that you know and ev eventually like in 2016 I traveled to China um, to so at that point in China um, the air pollution problem had been around long enough and the country had been investing in environmental science for long enough that a lot of local scientists were were running atmospheric chemistry models. And my modeling was at the point where, you know, I felt like I could go there and maybe like give them advice on updates that they could make to capture, you know, this process or that process more accurately, something. So like, I, I felt like, okay, this is an angle that, that makes sense for me to engage this problem. And, yeah. uh, you know, I remember I, it was December of 2016 and I landed during um, one of those red alert, you know, five alarm air pollution episodes and like you really couldn't see your hand in front of your face and it was like wow this is um e you have to see it to believe it right have you ever yeah. traveled to china or india during those kinds of conditions no i've never been to china i've been to india a bunch of times but never during the worst of it i was in delhi in 2014, but it was April. It was super duper hot, and the air wasn't great. But it, it wasn't one of the worst. Yeah, that's not really the big air pollution season. Yeah. There. So no, I have not. I'm, I'm. Yeah, and and the funny thing about India. So I, I go to India a lot too because of um, my husband's family. Yeah. Um, you know, before, let's say before like two years ago, even if you traveled to Delhi in like January in like the peak of a a bad pollution event. Mm -hmm. the awareness level was so low that you wouldn't, you know, so, so people would say, oh, sorry, the weather's not good today. And, you know, my feeling was like, okay, I'm not gonna, I, I don't have my instruments with me to <laughs> measure the PM 2.5 or whatever, you know, and I'm not going to question the, the knowledge of the people who, who live here, who are my hosts, but, you know, weather is not normally brown. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, um, it just did not feel like a good situation. And But then, you know, uh, over time, you know, like I, I guess 2016 is around the time when the the air pollution extreme, you know, episodes have been happening in Delhi with enough, you know, disruption to local life that um, it's making international news and stuff. And so at, the, at this point, you know, around then, awareness started increasing in Delhi, and I would say by now, um, many parts of the rest of the country are, are very uh, in tune to, to air pollution as an issue as well. Um, so this is all to say, you know, I've been thinking about the problem and, and how it would make sense for me to engage with it for a while. Um, and then through, you know, kind of, you know, these things happen in, in pieces, but eventually led by, you know, some suggestions from the Earth Institute, um, I started to organize the actually very large number of people on our campus who work on air pollution, but yep. not necessarily from the you know same technical angle. So I felt very alone being an atmospheric chemist working in a lab for most of my career at, at Columbia because I really was the only one, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we hired Arlene Fiore, yep. who... Um, you know, she's a, a global modeler who does atmospheric chemistry and climate. Yeah. Um, you know, at least we had a little community there. Yeah. But I, I really didn't see us as having this massive 
you know, I, I didn't feel like I had this peer group or, or community that I was part of at Columbia so much. I was more collaborating outside of, of the institution, which was fine. A lot of us are in that situation. Um, but then, you know, through, and, and the Earth Institute is kind of great this way, right? Like this is part of what they should be doing, which is connecting the dots between people with similar interests and concerns who may not know each other and, you know, could benefit from from talking across disciplines. So there's, yeah. you know, groups of people in, at, um, at Manhattan, or sorry, Millman School of Public Health, who are, you know, they would consider them themselves air pollution specialists. There are people in uh, SIPA, the uh, policy school, who think a lot about p air pollution, law school, um, you know, data scientists who've worked on air pollution sensors. You know, yeah. we eventually, you know, gathered together a group of like 23, you could say like 23 PIs. So like many of us also have our own groups. Um, you know, working with us to, but you know, this this, this very big coalition of, of people at Columbia th who think about air pollution from from all different angles, and that was roughly a year ago. And right. our our question that we were tasked to answer, which um, interestingly is also, I mean, it, it was a good question, but also it's been the same question that a lot of funding opportunities ask you to answer these days. Um, was, you know, if, if we're going to sit down and do solutions-oriented work to actually improve air quality in a given location in, you know, you could call it the global south or um, lower to middle income countries or whatever you want to call it, you know, what would we do? You know, it was honestly pretty impressive that, you know, what came out of this, um, you know, discussion ses session. Like, right away, we basically identified that as a community, you know, from our own research um, experience and expertise, we had kind of a suite of, um, you know, you could call them tools in a toolbox, uh, support services or expert assistance or whatever you want to call it, like th things that we could help a city with, you yeah. know, if there's a city that would is interested in improving their air pollution, um, you know, and then beyond like technical work there's also this big capacity building element of things so yeah like one thing i'm seeing with the work so I, i'm leading kind of the india part of the project right now so can um, you just describe i mean give the sort of summary of what the project is before, i mean i, I don't want yeah so derail you, but just yeah it, it's essentially that idea i mean it, you can get into different details about like what specific activities we would participate in but you know we identify cities that um want to work with us a lot of the are you know what motivates us in a lot of ways is the idea that there's many places on earth where air pollution is a big public health problem but there's almost no data on the ground mm. to um, you know let's say if a, if a city wanted to improve their air quality how would they even know if there's no data um, right to show that it's improving and you know what what happens more often is that until that data exists, there's not much political will to make any changes because, you know, reducing pollution and, you know, making those kinds of decisions, they're, they cost economically and they're also politi politically not always that, that popular, right? So unless you have numbers saying, this is how many people are dying prematurely, this is the dollars lost 
each year, you know, if you don't address this air pollution problem, it's very difficult to, to make the argument that anything needs to be done. Because right? you're asking people to either stop some form of burning something industrially or otherwise, or you're trying to impose some sort of cleanup technology filters or exactly those I mean, would be the remediation and so cost somebody something yeah yeah and 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 many of these locations are also places that are trying to develop their economies maybe trying to electrify um you know improving the livelihoods of people in some other vector right um and meanwhile those activities are you know they could be designed differently to to reduce air pollution you can put it that way yeah. um yeah, so a lot of it focuses on, you know, some of the cities that we're working in in Africa, you know, we're starting at that zero data level, right? So Dan Westervelt, um, he's a, a research scientist at Lamont. He's been leading a lot of the field work in Africa, most of the field work in Africa. And so, for example, he's been working in Kinshasa in DR Congo, and they just didn't have any measurements on the ground. And so he developed a... a network of, of sensors to, to get started on mapping that out. Um, you know, part of our approach involves using low-cost sensors, which is really like an art and a science right now in the sense that, you know, the, the market is flooded with different air pollution sensors that, you know, are cheaply made and, um, you know, it's a, it's a great alternative to what our government normally uses, which is, um, you know, let's say each one costs at least, let's say, 40K for one sensor, and then you need a trained professional to run it in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, you know, and which is, you know, so that kind of capital investment is part of why the measurements aren't being made. And so it's very attractive to go in with a network of sensors that cost a couple hundred dollars each and, and get this high spatial resolution and get data right away. But if you don't um, take into account the, the technical limitations of those sensors, you can right. generate a lot of garbage also, right? right. So rem if, if you recall back to that undergraduate research project I mentioned about growing the particles up to a size that can be detected with light yeah. scattering. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what most of those low-cost sensors are trying to do, is do the light scattering without the growing part. I see. So there's like a fundamental, fundamental physical limit on what the low-cost sensors can do. And then put on top of that um, the fact that in many of these environments, it's like a uh, higher particle loadings than what the sensors might have been designed for if they were designed in the US. Um, different fluctuations in relative humidity, which they might have not been designed for, um, you know, kind of harsh environments. Basically, I mean, I'm making it sound like an impossible problem, but, you know, with a combination of knowing enough about the aerosol science to pick the, the right sensors, doing careful calibration using, you know, a combination of, of network design and data science to um, make sure that those sensors are telling you what you think they are. Um, you know, basically between those things, we feel like we can get good data out of these low-cost sensor networks. And it, it's, I mean, it's huge to be able to lower that barrier to actually getting data. Um, and, you know, it's easy to, to share publicly, which is a huge a huge element of this whole, you know, seeding the 
public awareness and eventually the, the desire for change, both from the public and, and the, the political side. And I mean, I know we've sort of started saying this already, but just to say it again that, I mean, this work is amazing, but it is so different from sort of what you started out doing in the sense that here, and, and different from what probably most academics do in the sense that here you're not trying to solve some problem that's at the very cutting edge of basic science. I mean, you're not trying to understand some new reaction in the atmosphere or some new mechanism of how aerosols form or how those influence the climate system. You're trying to go to a place and say, okay, what do we need to do to get the people in this place, the data that they need in order to justify some better policies for reducing air pollution and improving public health. And the problems you have to solve in order to do that are whatever the pra pragmatic problems are. In other words, they're not the problems that are necessarily going to get you you know, um, a paper, paper in science, in science about yeah. the basic physics or chemistry. They're, they're the problems that you, whatever you need to do, figuring out how to get a cheap sensor to get good enough data, figuring out how to work with your partners locally, mm -hmm. you know, and so on. So it really is a radical reorientation, but it doesn't sound like at this point that you really flinched at that at all. It sounds like you, you guys have taken it right up. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, indeed, when we have written proposals about this topic, you know, often they'll explicitly say, like, we don't want research proposals. We want you to tell us, like, what are you going to do to solve this problem? And, yeah. you know, so we, we dive right into it. Like, you know, we, we believe that the reason that we've been working on the, all these things individually and collectively is, is to solve problems eventually. But, you know, Columbia researchers being who we are <laughs> and, you know, research being where the tools that we all have came from. Um, when I'm actually doing this field work, it doesn't feel that far divorced from, from research, right? So, you know, I, I definitely believe that we're already having positive impacts, but at the same time, like nobody has ever done, or n nobody ever has demonstrated like an in-field calibration of these kinds of sensors and, shown that it can be a reliable approach for decision makers in um, these kind of low resource settings before. You know, it, again, you're right, it's not like uh, a new theory or something like that, but it's it's something new and it's something pretty cutting edge. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It's so super it, exciting it's science, funny. but it's it, but it's different kind of, I mean, it's Yeah, it's very stuff. different. That's exactly right. Do you feel that it would have been as easy to do it before you had tenure? No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've had tenure for quite some time at this point, though. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm just yeah. saying, but that's a sort of a, that's a slightly sad statement about our institutions. You yeah, know it's I mean? a subtext. I mean, even just the collaborative nature of what I'm doing, right? Like, everything I'm doing is involving 23 other PIs at Columbia. Like, that's a recipe right. for not getting tenure, so. <laughs> right, right. No, you're at a point where you don't have to stress too much exactly how much credit you get. Yeah. But if you but also, I mean. Out, Let's be real, at this point in our careers, leading large projects is what they kind of expect from, from senior scientists, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Right. But there might be people who might be ready to do it younger, but who who would hurt their careers to do it. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Have, has it been, how has it been working with the partners in the, you know, in the countries? It has been easier than I thought it would be. So... 
you know, somehow I thought that it would be harder to find officials that would be interested in cooperating with us, or I thought there might be more of like an adversarial relationship between, you know, let, let's say we might find more kindred spirits in the, in the university community and yeah. um, more skepticism among the, the government side. I'm not, yep. I'm not finding that at all, especially in places that are obviously very hard hit by the air pollution problem. They are willing to take any help they can get. Um, they they want to solve the problem. They want to to do their best, and especially if you know we're we're kind of offering without them having to to you know financially invest in 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 what we're doing much at this stage. So it's it's very welcomed. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um. So I would love to talk about this more, but. Um, and if there's any, is there any more you want to say about it? Because I was thinking we might move on to the current situation a little bit. No, that's fine. We can move on. Okay. Because I, I have some things I want to get your thoughts on. Um, we are, of course, talking in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. We're all stuck at home. Um, and uh, one of the things that has happened as a consequence of this is that uh, the air has become dramatically cleaner in a lot of places in the world because people aren't driving cars as much. Um, some in, in industries are shut down. And so I'm just curious, any reflections you have on it, sort of how much cleaner it is? Is that more or less than you would have expected? Where in the world or where not? You know, what does that tell us about what we might be able to do or not be able to do when things come back to to whatever normal they come back to and and so forth have you have you spent time reflecting on on this situation so i think you know i i wish i had more time to do data analysis myself right i mean this is our instinct as scientists is like you want to see the data for yourself and you know the the brief dives into like let's say our sensor network in india when I check in on the, the PM 2.5 data there, it doesn't seem as different from pre-lockdown as um, I might have thought it would be. Mm. Um, I think especially when you're talking about particulate matter, um, in many places that's the case. Mm. When you think about the, like just talking about New York or other places in the US, I think we're getting a real sense of private car pollution, right? Like that, that that's one source that is very clearly like changed, right? Right. Um, the other air pollution sources out there, there's still many that are the same as they were before the, the pandemic shutdowns or even worse, right? Yeah. But places like Los, Los Angeles saw a much greater improvement because um, c mobile sources are, are such a big problem there. Yeah. So, you know, that, that could be an insight that, that we end up taking. Um, in India, so many of the sources are, are things that would continue. I mean, let, let's say burning solid fuels in your home to cook. Yeah. You know, people are at home, they're cooking, you know, that hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> It's very tricky when you look at the data, especially when people were trying to look at it in like early April or something. Yeah. Um, because 
it's it was a fairly short time period, but then also the shutdowns happened at a time in between seasons that yeah. would make a big difference in, in what pollution levels would look like. So you absolutely expect in India that, you know, let's say between January and April, the air should clean up a lot because it's a season change, right? So meteorology uh -huh. just changes. You can compare from, you know, this March and April to last year and see if there's an appreciable difference. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see kind of measured takes on that. But I'll, I'll be honest, you know, the way the media is covering this particular topic is a little bit on the side of hyping it up. Because um, mm. the changes aren't as dramatic as they're being portrayed. Yeah, or they're just trying to make it sound a little bit simpler, understandably. Yeah, I mean, I know some of the changes you can see from satellite, right? Some of the some of these mm -hmm. changes are visible from space, right? Right, but then you have to look at the um, you have to decouple those changes that you see from what would you expect with the seasonal changes? Right. I mean, but I guess that the analysis that are, takes a little time. Yeah. Right. I guess there, you know, but are, are are there any things that one can see from space that are striking enough? That one doesn't even need to do that. I mean, it's just you know so out, so outside the uh, um, you know outside well, the norm that that it's obvious, or is that not the case with anything? Well, I, I guess I, you and I both probably saw the the images that were going around on Twitter of uh, like the just fantastic visibility in Los Angeles during yeah. that period that was a bit rainy before it got hot, and you know shortly after the car traffic was was slowed down so much. I mean, people haven't seen that in years um you know so that that's that's real yeah. and i mean besides scientifically telling us about the importance of particular sources you know going back to this idea of awareness of air pollution yeah um you know places where like let's say if you're not like me you don't have asthma air pollution might be kind of a daily feature of your life and you might not be aware of it. And right. then if, if somebody's lucky enough to live in a place where, you know, this natural experiment caused blue skies for the first time or whatever, something that they weren't used to, they'll remember that, right? So right. that's often, that's part of the, the public uh, subconscious or whatever in, in China, the fact that they had the, um, the, during the Beijing Olympics, the government essentially did a, some mini version of this shutdown, right? And to, to create blue skies for the Olympics. Right, yeah. And so seeing that that was possible and right. the government could make it happen, <laughs> right? even if it wasn't exactly economically stable, it plants a seed. Right. Why didn't you it tell doesn't us have you to be that, like this, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it's one of many aspects of this crisis where, the, the, the pandemic reveals so many problems in the society, so many fragilities yeah, of many right. types, physical and political and all other kinds. And it leads the more optimistic among us to think, well, then when, we, when the pandemic's over, maybe we'll be able to remember these lessons learned and improve some of these things. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's that optimistic. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I guess air pollution is yeah. just one of those dimensions. That's right. Okay, well, the other other thing I wanted to 
talk about with you was um, more about the virus and the pandemic itself. Um, you and I have been discussing through various uh, media about the um, the issue of how the virus actually spreads because this touches on aerosol science, which is your your expertise, even though you hadn't specialized in in the application to to biology and epidemiology before this. But the initial thing that was being said in the first days of the pandemic was, well, coronavirus, the virus is transmitted through droplets, which is, you know, when people cough, they spew out these tiny, but on the scale of aerosols in the atmosphere, relatively large gobs of phlegm or, you know, water and various biological gunk that's coming out of your lungs and whatever combination that carries the virus on it. And you get that, somebody else inhales that and that's how they get the virus. And the World Health Organization and others in the field make this distinction between droplets and aerosol. So droplets is basically bigger drops and aerosol is basically smaller ones that are small enough that they can float around in the air for long periods of time. So when the WHO says airborne transmission, even though if I cough on you, that's still going through the air, but the WHO doesn't call that airborne. Airborne, they mean that it's small aerosols that are floating around for a long enough time that I don't have to cough directly on you. I could have coughed, you know, in the elevator and you could have walked in 10 minutes later. Yeah, you're not coughing into my mouth or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's one of the gross things about these pandemics. We've all learned that we're all exchanging, we'd all been exchanging bodily fluids all this time. We didn't know it. It's pretty gross. But, um, but anyway, there's this distinction between small particles and large particles, and the more it's spread through small particles, the more dangerous it is because it means you know somebody can can not even cough, just breathe or talk in the grocery store, and I can walk in the grocery store a while later and still get it. Whereas if it's not mm-hmm. transmitted through aerosols, that's not the case. And of course, it's not a hard line between aerosols and droplets. There's sort of all different sizes that are possible. It's not just two categories. But this is now a debate that's been going on you know, as with a lot of aspects of this crisis, people sort of very rapidly publishing studies and the science has been evolving very rapidly. But my impression is that it is that the evidence for aerosol transmission is more than it was before, but still hotly debated. And so I'm just curious if you've been, I think you've been following this closer than I do, and then you understand the science of it yeah. better. So I where where are we on this? I don't understand the debate side of it I mean there's something I I've seen enough papers where you know enough case studies of clusters that formed when groups of people were in close contact with somebody who was what they call pre-symptomatic mm-hmm. um, so I, I think that this particular language is confusing when epidemiologists use it because you don't know you're pre-symptomatic, you think you're asymptomatic when you are, right? But, so basically people who aren't obviously sick. So, you know, if you remember back to early March, our message was like, you know, the message we were receiving was, if there's somebody who obviously like is coughing and has a fever, don't let them cough on you, you'll be okay, just wash your hands, right? Um, But there's all these case studies where there's, you know, a, a gathering of people, somebody is pre-symptomatic, and then, you know, a number of people in kind of a, a pattern that suggests that there was an airflow connection, they yeah. all come down with it. 
and you know it, the, the circumstantial evidence for aerosol transmission is is really high at this point. Um, you know, there's evidence from hospital studies where they're detecting active virus on the air vents. You know, like we know it's we know it travels through aerosol. There's plenty of examples of kind of non-sick people, like you mentioned, doing activities like choir groups singing together in a closed room six feet apart for a couple hours and then a number of them fall sick, right? Even though they right. all were healthy at the time. Right. Where it's like, you know, what else could it have been at that point besides aerosol transmission? Um, right. You know, I'm not sure what the point of arguing against aerosol transmission is. Well, I mean, I guess the binary, you know, the binary the binary logic of, of aerosol or not aerosol is maybe not that helpful because there's degrees, right? I mean, there's No, but I've, there's I've seen it, you know, on Twitter or whatever too, where the medical community, for whatever reason, they would prefer to not make that call. May, I don't know. Maybe they want proof that it happened uh, in a different form rather than, you know, deduction or whatever, but... It's certainly enough that I started wearing a mask a long time ago. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, but there are, but it is a question of degree. I mean, the socially distancing rules, I mean, obviously six feet, you know, is too, we've had a lot of conversations about this, but I mean, six feet is obviously too simple a rule because there's a huge difference between us walking in the park and coming within six feet of each other for a second versus somebody in a grocery store who's six feet from people all day in an indoor environment. You know, mm -hmm. those are very different degrees of risk and you know my or jogging at pace along the riverside park right. greenway six feet behind somebody who's breathing heavily <laughs> right right no i mean I, yeah. I you know well yeah i mean my prejudice as somebody who's not at all an expert in this topic but who's been following on twitter and does understand something about airflow in the atmosphere is that generally speaking Although I'm sure you can get it outside, especially if people are very tightly clustered or, if, you know, if you're right behind somebody who's jogging or something. But that generally some people, at least on social media, are freaking out a bit too much about outside environments where the risk is still pretty low if you're not very close to people versus, you know, the, I mean, the cases where it's really been demonstrated, you mentioned there's a Chinese the restaurant in China where, you know, people were separated by, you know, maybe it was a little over six feet, but, you know, it was still an indoor environment and they were sort of sitting there for a long time and they mm -hmm. were in hospitals or, you know, places call where center, there's... Yeah, the these kind of practice, yeah. But, I mean, there is... So, I mean, the, 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 the discussion about aerosol transmission versus not is maybe oversimplified to the point of being counterproductive, but there is a debate that... Maybe debate isn't the right word for it, but there, you know there could stand to be a more nuanced understanding of how much and what type of social distancing is how effective. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it does come down to like how much is carried by particles of what sizes and how much of that do you need to inhale to get sick and, you know, so on. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I, and I, I saw a recent study um, indicating that like natural sunlight I mean, this sounds like Trump, but <laughs> that, you know, at least on, on surfaces that have been contaminated with, with virus, that natural sunlight actually is a very effective disinfectant. So talking about outdoors, you know, I, I don't know if this was done with aerosols too, but um, certainly it doesn't seem to survive on surfaces outdoors as long as it does indoors. 
but even though i mean even indoors the sort of rate at which people are de facto getting infected from surfaces doesn't seem to really be understood either right i mean it's sort of a theoretically known it can happen the virus can live on surfaces but how much people are actually getting sick that way yeah i mean proportionally to the the degree to which washing your hands has, and not touching your face has been emphasized in the messaging it doesn't seem proportionally right. to be as much evidence for that being important you're right right yeah so have you been but have you been keeping up with this science have you been getting interested yeah i've been um you know doing my best to to follow it i've given a couple talks on it i mean you know as as somebody who was teaching a class on aerosols through this pandemic <laughs> yeah you know, I, I, yeah i felt driven to i mean because we had to teach that one class before spring break yeah i think it would think it was like march 12th yeah and the students weren't you know they they hadn't left for spring break yet and it they hadn't been told that they can't come back to the dorm yet and yeah. it was just this sense of panic everywhere at least you know <laughs> inside my mind there was a sense of panic <laughs> yeah um and so I thought, like, are the students really going to want to sit through some lecture on, like, aerosols and climate? Or should I try to actually learn something about the role of aerosols and, you know, what is a respiratory aerosol? What does this all look like? And talk to them about masks and that kind of stuff. And I, I, I was a little sensitive to the fact that anxieties were so high at that moment that they may not want to hear about it in school, too. Like, they may be looking at... Right. And maybe this is giving myself too much credit, but maybe... They would look at my class as a respite from, you know, the cares of the world and just want to lose themselves in aerosol science or whatever. Um, so I, I gave them a poll saying, like, would you like an extra lecture on, on or not extra, but would, would you like me to just make a next the next lecture about um, respiratory aerosols and the spread of viruses? Yes, that sounds interesting. I don't care. Or no, please let me stop thinking about this topic. And, you know, everybody who responded said, yes, this sounds interesting. So right. I started yes. learning enough to be able to, you know, talk about it on that level and then, you know, try to keep up with the literature after that. No, it's another example of being responsive to the problem in front of you rather than just what's what's going to get you your next paper published. I think you posted your slides online and that's what got me thinking about it, actually. Yeah, I like to think that, um, you know, as the students disperse to their homes all over the country or the world or whatever. Maybe they had some debates over the dinner table and I gave them extra fuel to <laughs> oh, yeah. explain to people why they should be uh, respecting the social distancing orders. Yeah, I bet. Have you, and has it come up, have you, has it come up more in class since then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm in touch with some of the students, you know, for undergrad research projects and stuff. And um, yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting time for, for undergraduates uh, oh being gosh. at home living their lives. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, um, I don't want to take up your whole afternoon. Uh, we've been talking for a couple of hours. But, yeah, it's um, been fun. It, the time just flew by. <laughs> good, good. Is there anything else we ought to be, is there anything else we should be talking about that I didn't ask about, but that you'd like to discuss? No, I guess I'll just have to come on another time and we can talk about everything else. Okay. All right. Well, um, thanks so much for doing this, Faye. Uh, yeah, thank great you. Great talking to you. And. Uh, Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Okay. We covered a lot there.
And it was such a pleasure to talk to aerosol expert, atmospheric scientist, chemical engineer, and my colleague, Professor Faye McNeil. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hom, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Mm -hmm.